You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves from the 3CR studios in Melbourne and via podcast. Thanks to the previous show and Sally from Out of the Pan covering all things pansexual issues, including transgender, bisexual and polyamorous issues. Check out Sally's show every Sunday at 12pm if you want to listen to those sorts of topics. It's always a great show. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Chris Hopwood, Professor of Psychology from the University of California, Davis. Chris is an excellent and very prolific um, psychology researcher asking the question, why do people do the things they do? With an interest among many other interests, um, it seems from the research, uh, about why some people eat animals and others are vegetarian or vegan. Chris is also an organizer of the FAIR Society, um, which is a, a really great acronym, I think, which stands for the Society for the Psychology of Human-Animal Intergroup Relations. The goal of FAIR Society is to advance and promote scientific research and education on a wide range of topics related to how animals, uh, how people perceive and treat animals, the consumption of plant-based versus animal-derived products, animal advocacy, and veganism. FAIR are currently running a series of research presentations all about these topics, and this is leading towards uh, the Animal Advocacy Conference in the middle of this year. Um, And I'll provide details to all those links uh, in the show notes for anyone that's interested, certainly worth uh, checking out, and we'll be talking about them today. yeah, and today we'll chat with Chris about their research in human-animal intergroup relations and psychology. And um, so, so thanks a lot for joining us today. I really appreciate it. All the way thanks from California. Yeah. <laughs> this is the magic of uh, Zoom, I suppose. Yeah, it de- definitely is. Um, so first off, I, I always like to ask people, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and particularly why, why animals? Like why you're studying this particular part amongst all the other things that you could be studying that's a great question i mean there's a long answer and a short answer you know i have a long answer we've got time (laughs) great i've uh you know i've been passionate about animals my entire life i grew up in a rural part of of the states in northern michigan um, where hunting and farming were major parts of the culture and you know i I was i was given a gun as a birthday present early in life and uh, sort of made and expected to hunt and eat animals, et cetera. And it made me uncomfortable from the very beginning before I re- really had any knowledge or was able to process why it made me uncomfortable. But I knew I loved animals and I knew I didn't want to shoot at them or to eat them. Uh, I did I eat them uh, until I was a teenager and sort of made the decision, uh, the unpopular decision in my family to stop eating animals. Um, and there was a there was a brief uh, break from that decision at one point in young adulthood, but uh, by and large, uh, I've I've stayed that way for quite some time. I've been vegan for several years, um, so it started kind of early. Um, in my career, uh, you know, I, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. My background is in assessment, so how do we measure? people and how do we measure the stuff that we can't see in people like their personality or their psychopathology. Um, And I suppose with tenure comes some liberty to do whatever you like. And, you know, this area is not at this point particularly fundable. I think it's beginning to gain some traction in the journals so that you can publish in this area in the major journals, but that hasn't been the case in the past. And so um, I'm not sure that I would have been able to be as successful as I have been so far to the degree that I have had I started out on this topic. But you know, having been tenured and now being a full professor, um, I think it was a time to take stock and figure out like where do you want to invest your time. And while I think there's value in clinical psychology, and I still have you know some interest in that area and in personality psychology. 
um, I sort of feel like this is the thing that I could be most useful uh, uh, doing. Um, and so I got into the topic of, uh, in particular, motivations for eating animals or not eating animals. Um, again, my background is in assessment. And when I sort of dug into the literature, uh, one thing I felt was that we could perhaps do a little bit more in terms of, of developing measures um, that, can, that can assess in a straightforward way why people choose to eat animals and why people don't choose to eat animals. And so my first uh, sort of foray into that world had to do with developing measures uh, along those lines. Um, as, I, as I sort of got into it, my observation was, boy, there's, there's a lot of people doing really cool work in this space. Um, but it's like published in journals about eating. It's published in journals about biology and agriculture. It's published in journals about uh, human animal interactions, meaning like pets and animal assisted therapy. And there's no, uh, there's certainly tons of amazing work in advocacy where people come together and talk about these things. Um, but there isn't a, a sort of coherent structure within psychology where, where people are doing this in kind of a coordinated way. And so, you know, I had some meetings with people at, at conferences, et cetera. And, um, you know, I just started talking with people. I think some other people had these ideas too, you know, uh, so Christoph Don't is one of, one of the people that's, uh, that's uh, been working with me on the fair society. And he, he started this actually a couple of years ago when, when he uh, sponsored an animal advocacy conference, which unfortunately was canceled because of the pandemic, but which will be, uh, will, will be held uh, soon uh, online. Um, and some other people, and it just seemed like the time was right maybe to push something like this forward. So we have vague ideas and really the fair society is sort of our initial foray into, into trying to generate some momentum uh, towards a scientific a society that could run parallel to some of the advocacy work, mm -hmm. could be a place where researchers could get to together and talk about this stuff, collaborate, where we could support junior scholars. Ultimately, we you know, we have ideas about potentially having a journal and that kind of thing. So I think it's a good time for me to be getting involved personally, but it's also a good time for the field to, to, to coordinate in maybe a little bit more of a concerted way. Uh, That's really interesting that you say that. So I do a fair few interviews with different people from different um, research areas and fields of research. And it seems like this same conversation is being had in several um, areas of research. So um, I know some sociology colleagues are doing a similar thing. And in um, the environmental sciences, there's things that are starting to happen where it's sort of, it's almost the last decade, there's been, particularly in psychology, psychology has really been pushing a lot of this research. And when as advocates, I'm an advocate as well, an activist, when I'm looking for research, I often find it in psychological literature. Um, but as you say, it is sort of spread across. Appetite, for instance, is a really big okay. journal that has all of the psychology stuff, but it sort of leans towards that dietary dietary side of things. So it's great to hear that you're, you're sort of, yeah, trying to create something that's um, specific for these topics because it does seem to be growing quite rapidly at the moment, the research that's coming out. It's true, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's coincident with a couple of other things. You know, the rates of vegan diet yeah. are obviously increasing. Actually, we're looking at data from Australia now for a study that we're doing, that, and it's pretty clear that people are eating fewer animals, eating more plant-based milks and that kind of thing. I mean, we have a long way to go, but that that's a that's a non-trivial difference over the last decade or so in Australia and in other places. Um, I think there's an increased appreciation and awareness of the environmental impacts of animal agriculture and the animal trade. And, you know, that's being published in the BBC and, and places that get really wide circulation regularly in ways that, you know, you'd had to really look for it a decade or so ago more. And you know this stuff. But yeah. so I just think, you know, even people who don't necessarily have a passion about animals are increasingly aware yeah. of the social justice, uh, of the environmental, of the other reasons why we should care about this kind of thing. Yeah, I think I think probably even five years ago, most people wouldn't have been aware of the impact of, say, um, cows on climate, on carbon okay. emissions. But nowadays, if you ask, if you ask people, I think I've seen some stuff on this where they ask people, and there has been like a a shift in um, uh, in sort of attitudes or or understanding that people now recognise vegetarian or plant based diets as being better for the environment. 
and that's only happened really recently. It's um, right. It's yeah, it's it's an exciting time, I think. It really is, and I suppose the other thing that's gone along with that is, you know, something I know your your show has sort of emphasized is is lab based, cell based uh, meat products. Um, you know, there's been I, I haven't sampled those, but the but the but the options for plant based eating are so much better than they were. I remember when you could get like these bricks that passed as like veggie burgers when I was a teenager, and that was really it. And so you know, you ate bread and vegetables and and beans, but, um, and I don't have anything against bread or vegetables or beans, but it's nice to be able to, I had an impossible burger last night and, uh, it's nice to be able to have a lot more options than we used to. So that's probably part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. This, the idea of, um, like self-efficacy, just thinking that you can do it. And if you make it absolutely. easier to switch from, you know, a, a beef burger to an impossible burger, because I don't know, I can't tell the difference <laughs> anymore. You know, it's I've been got... a while since I've had a, a non-impossible burger, since a possible burger, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, they're delicious. Uh, yeah. and, 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 you know, I think the costs are coming down, mm. um, on those so that they're, of course, you know, the, the animal trade gets supplemented by governments in most yep. places. And so that's part of the, the inequity that needs to be dealt with. But, but, you know, I think as those costs come down and, and as people realize that you can't tell a difference, it's going to be very difficult to rationalize eating animals when you really don't need to, even for people who may not be so interested in, yep. in social justice or maybe not as aware of the environmental impacts. And on, on that, actually, that point about rationalizing um, animals that we that we eat or that people eat um that's that's really part of your research isn't it so understanding so i i looked i saw had a skim through um google scholar for those that don't know google scholar is a great place to look up researchers and and see their their um, back catalog of publications chris has a lot of good publications um and what stood out was sort of these ideas around personality traits and the ra rationalization for eating meat values and the rationalization for eating meat. Can you tell us a little bit about why, why are you particularly studying those characteristics? What's important yeah. about studying those? Well, I should preface this by saying that there's been a lot of really good work in moral and social psychology about some of this, the, the more complex dynamics and rationalizations around this. So a couple of Australians, Brock Bastian and Steve yep. Lofnan, have done great stuff around the meat paradox. Um, and, and, you know, my, my colleague, Hank Rothgerber, with whom I'm actually publishing a special issue of Appetite right now, along with Matt Ruby, who's also in your country, a special issue of Appetite on issues related to vegetarian diet. He's been, he's done, done great stuff about this. Uh, I've got a colleague at UCLA, Daniel Rosenfeld, who's been doing really interesting stuff about sort of intersectionality and identity and, and, and the ways in which the way that you eat really reflects a core aspect of yourself. Mm. Um, I'm a personality psychologist by training and, um, and I thought, you know, one valuable, one thing I could do maybe to, to make a contribution would be to focus on the more overt things, the less complicated underlying dynamics, just the straightforward, like it, when you ask people, why do you eat animals or why do you not eat animals? Like, what are the main things that people say mm. um, on the, why do you eat animals side? Another one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Jared Piazza, who's the other person along with uh, Christoph, who, who's working on the Fair Society stuff, uh, did a really nice paper based on some work, well, going all the way back to the Smiths, arguably in the 80s, but, uh, but Melanie Joy's work also on, on these three ends or four ends. So yeah. when you ask people, why do they eat meat? They give you one of these things. It's natural or it's tasty or whatever. And so, you know, he, he made a measure designed to get at you know, what will people say in response to that in a way that's kind of a defensive rationalization. And he and I have been working with some of our other colleagues on the more explicit question of like, well, let's take these things kind of seriously as distinct reasons. So um, it's true that people sometimes think that it's natural to eat animals or it's normal to eat animals, meaning that everyone does it, why shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. So we developed a measure uh, not trying to get at the underlying conflictual or defensive rationalization. So, so when backed against a wall, how does a meat eater sort of defend themselves, but yeah. rather just if you're not sort of putting pressure and you just ask in a plain way, what reasons do people give? So on, on that side, we, we have found evidence for the, the four ends um, along the lines of, of, of that work. On the, on the why do you not eat animals, why are you vegetarian side? Mm. You know, um, there's religious reasons in some cultures, obviously, but particularly in Western cultures, the three biggest reasons that people have um, are 
they, they eat animals because of animal rights reasons. They, they, excuse me, they don't eat animals for animal rights uh, reasons. They don't eat animals for environmental reasons and uh, they don't eat animals for health reasons. So our first study was developing a measure of that um, and then looking at its correlates in, in uh, both Dutch and American uh, samples. And so we looked at a wide range of correlates and the reason that we do that uh, from a, from a sort of construct validation perspective, which is a fancy word for saying, trying to figure out what we're talking about when we talk about psychological constructs like animal rights motives. Mm. Um, uh, the idea is that you, you correlate your scale with a bunch of other things and that helps you figure out what that scale is measuring in the first place. Um, so we found you know, that, that by and large, people who, people who eat, who don't eat animals for health reasons are pretty distinct from people who don't eat animals from for the two ethical reasons the environment um, and animal rights it's a little bit more difficult to disentangle animal rights from environment because those those largely capture similar people i mean i could go into more detail about the correlates of those things but i think that broadly captures my interest so far so we're doing some follow-up stuff along those lines uh, testing whether you get the same kinds of motives across different cultures uh, across different kinds of people, um, ethnicities, uh, gender identifications, et cetera, um, and following uh, and examining the stability of these constructs. So do, they, so do levels of these things change with access to different kinds of information, with changing cultural trends, mm. with potentially purposeful interventions, which is something that we'd like to do uh, moving forward. Um, so I think that this, this complements the stuff being done in social psychology around the underlying conflictual or defensive rationalizations um, in sort of a parallel stream of research, uh, uh, a little bit more explicit, a little bit more on the surface. Um, yeah, yeah, it's sort of, um, yeah, I really liked um, uh, Frank Rothgerber's, oh, Hank, sorry, Hank Rothgerber's mm -hmm. um, uh, work last year. I've, I've spruiked it lots on this show actually the meat related yeah, cognitive great. dissonance framework and it's sort of like Absolutely. that personality or that environment stuff that that feeds into the response those deeper and uh, more complex responses but understanding right. those is also going to be an important part of um of that larger yeah framework like really picking figuring out as you say how does how does um sort of someone's personality traits and and just these broad this broad understanding of why do you do x how does that influence um more complex and complicated um mechanisms uh, i think there is to work work to be done on the surface in a way yeah. i mean just yeah. one example is that um people who aren't particularly interested or informed about uh animal issues generally speaking if, if the reason that they that what we find is the reason that they would consider becoming a vegetarian is for health. Mm -hmm. And they don't, generally speaking, they don't think of the environment or animal rights. They don't sort of connect it to social justice in the way that you and I might, yep. and they may not be aware of the environmental impacts of the same, but it's sort of intuitive to people that, well, it's healthier to eat plants than it is to eat hamburgers yep. or whatever. Um, and yet that's not the best reason. I mean, there, there is some evidence, you know, that the, that it's healthier to eat plants, but there's also evidence that that a strict vegan diet is associated with eating disorder. Mm. And, you know, so the evidence is kind of ambiguous about the health benefits on average, yeah. it's healthier, but yeah. it's not like a real clear case. Whereas with the environment and animal rights, it couldn't be clearer. I mean, I mean, you sort of have to accept that animals are worth worrying about to, to buy the animal rights case, but it's, mm. it's difficult philosophically, I think, to really argue otherwise. Mm. Um, you know, the, the question of like, where do they rank relative to humans? Maybe people could argue or, about around the edges, whether they, they should get equal rights or slightly less rights or whatever. But I think it's very difficult to argue philosophically that they're sort of robots that, that don't deserve consideration at all. And then the environmental impacts couldn't be clear. I mean, that's, that's established science at this point. And so the irony is that people sort of assume, well, the main reason you'd want to be a vegetarian, and now I'm talking again about non-advocacy yeah. people sort of way outside of our world, they sort of assume the main reason you'd want to be a vegetarian is for your own personal health, mm. when actually that's sort of the weakest reason. And so Absolutely. the implication is, well, a little bit of education might go a long way, you know, as people become more aware of these things, mm. you know, it, it, throughout the world, social justice is really sort of having a moment connecting uh, animal rights to social to other social justice uh, concerns through, through a mechanism like intersectionality could have a lot of impact. Mm. And likewise, climate change and the environment are increasingly something that that 
people worldwide are caring about. It's no longer sort of a, a liberal fringe issue or something like it was 20 years ago. Um, and, so, yeah, go ahead. And have, have, you, have you started down that um, sort of research into a little bit of education? Does it actually impact? Is there any impact on people who are usually just the health path? Because I absolutely agree. I think health is, it's not something that I use as an, as an advocacy tool at all because you right. can be a healthy <clears throat> meat eater. Like you can totally. be as healthy as a vegan eating a certain amount of meat. It's, yep. you know, it's just clear. That's clear, um, yep. But yeah, what are... Is there hope that there there is possibility to to sort of um, nudge or influence or, or change change um, attitudes and behaviors? Yeah, yeah. The other, the, just to comment on that, the other the other thing about that is that people who become vegetarian for health reasons are the most likely to stop being vegetarian later on. So it's, it's a much more enduring and stable strategy to try to use animal rights and or the environment to can, to persuade people. Um, you know, this is a, this is the big question. I mean, we see, uh, indirect evidence in the sense that we're seeing increases in veganism at the same time that we're seeing increasing awareness about animal rights and, and environmental uh, uh, impacts. I'm currently writing a grant to do the study that, that uh, it's still a descriptive study. So it wouldn't be the kind of study where I tried to educate people and see the, the experimental effects on that, but rather just tracking individual differences as people become more aware of these things. Is it the case that their behavior follows suit? And yeah, as a personal psychologist, we, we tend to be conservative about this stuff. First, we just want to see what's happening in the world before we start intervening with it. That's sort of a, 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 a disciplinary difference between social and personality psychology. Um, there is work uh, uh, being done, you know, tr trying to uh, um, uh, use persuasion uh, uh, Animal Charity Evaluators is a funding agency that actually supported my first uh, grant in this area. And they funded a number of projects around this kind of topic of what happens when you, when you try to intervene on purpose, do people's behavior change and what are the reasons for that? And I guess the, the broad summary, and this is not my exactly my area of expertise, but my broad conclusion is that so far, there's pretty good evidence that if you try to persuade people in the right way, that you get effects, at least in the short term. Mm -hmm. I think the question really is how, um, how much do those effects stick? And so yeah. I think one thing we really need is longitudinal follow-up studies Absolutely. to see like, do, are people sticking to this? Like how convincing is it? And part yeah. of that probably has to do with how much the message is sustained, I would guess. That's exciting to hear that you're um, that you're you're working towards that sort of research. I think that is the missing piece. It, it's one of the big missing pieces. Is this? You know, everyone talks about their you know quote vegan journey unquote, and there does seem to be some similarities in people's experiences. And it's not just it's usually not just a once off. Oh, someone gave me this piece of information. I'm flipping overnight, but it's it's something. There's, there's maybe multiple contacts of right. multiple bits of information and things like that. And it's just, yeah, I think that that longitudinal research is absolutely vital. I'm, I'll be look, I'll be keeping an eye out for it for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's at this point, given what we do know, I mean, the thing is we're in a crisis. Yeah. So in some ways we can't wait 20 years for the longitudinal evidence to know the right thing to do. So my, my, I guess at this point, particularly for people in the advocacy world, keep on fighting the good fight. Yeah. You know, I, I think one interesting question is like, how much is it going to be helpful? There's different sort of sub-strategies. How much is it helpful, gonna be helpful to try to actually explicitly persuade people with educational programs? Mm -hmm. How much is it helpful to do something that the utilitarian movement sort of advocates, Meatless Mondays and that kind of thing? Um, how much is it gonna be helpful for just the public consciousness to change with increasing information? I sort of bet on the third thing as being perhaps the most influential. Like if if everyone just sort of accepts as true that the environment is a crisis and that we have to do something and that's not eating animals is one of the best things we can do mm. coupled with the availability of really good plant-based foods yep. for a reasonable price my guess is that that's this is just my personal guess is that's going to be the, the single biggest kind of effect yep. um, I, I, at the I, same I, at, yeah. go ahead I'd, I'd say the same i'd think that the fourth thing I'd put in there is economics. If, if it becomes cheaper totally. to eat plant-based, especially cell-based, which is, it is, it will be basically exactly the same. Um, exactly. I think that that'll, that'll just cause a massive flip. At the same time, I don't want to diminish the work that advocates do because that's mm. been so important to sort of be on the front lines and the cutting edge and pushing things forward. So I do think that's a sort of multi-program, a pronged approach 
um, is really important. And actually that's kind of the way that we're thinking about the fair society. We, we try, we're trying to sort of a, a thread a needle or, or, or balance between um, clearly being motivated by a, a spirit of advocacy and veganism, but at the same time, demarcating ourselves from advocacy as a scientific organization. Cool. Let's, let's leave it there and go to a song and then we'll pick That's up, good. pick up where that was. That's great. And this song is um, by, I like, I like the combination of the name of the, the song and the artist. It's called Eat by Paradox and it is about eating animals. So um, this is Eat by Paradox. Catch you on the other side. Radical Radio 3CR. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au.
You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR, 855 AM, uh, bringing animal advocacy to the airways. And today we are speaking with um, Professor Chris Hopwood from UC Davis, California. Um, and we're talking about Chris's work in psychology of, um, of why people might eat animals or eat meat, and also uh, the fair group that Chris is part of and is um, helping to organise certain things in that. And we just finished up before that song, um, just Chris sort of hinted at some of the stuff around fair. And I wanted to dive more into that, dive into what fair's about. Um, and in particular, I, I want to start off with, can you explain what human-animal intergroup relations means? Because I feel like it, it's distinct from human-animal <clears throat> relations, which often is talked about. And it, it feels like it's deliberate, the, the, the words that you've used, and they create a fantastic um, acronym, <laughs> FAIR. I mean, yeah, it's great. So could you talk about that a little bit? Like, what does it mean? We, yeah, yeah, Jared uh, Piazza, Christoph Don't and I spent a hell of a long time trying to trying to come up with a good way of describing it. It's very difficult. Um, you know, we, we thought of using a word like vegan in the title or vegan with an asterisk to include vegetarian. Uh, the, the challenge is to not to not exclude anybody, I think. Um, so we wanted we wanted to create a group that would include people who are primarily interested in diet, people who are primarily interested in sort of moral and social psychology, people mm -hmm. who are interested in individual differences, people who are interested in in, in actual animal human interaction, which is a, a, a different field. And there's a, there's an organization and a journal that has human animal interaction in it. And what that term means in psychology is um, animal assisted therapy, relationships mm -hmm. with pets. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we couldn't kind of infringe upon that. Intergroup relations is a concept that comes from social and moral psychology having to do with things like racism. Um, and so how do different groups, what's the psychology of how different groups relate to one another? And so we sort of borrowed and imported uh, that concept into into animals so animals are a group as well yes. it's a little bit yeah. one-sided and you know I, I think the one thing I, I suppose that bothers me the most is that humans are animals and so there's a there's there's almost a little bit of speciesism in our title because it sort of assumes that humans interact with animals when really it's more bi-directional bi um, animals interact with each other and we're just one of the species that participates in that at the same time obviously we have a dominion uh, you know in the sense that that we control how those interactions go for the most part so you know it's kind of a compromise i think you know one thing that we're hoping to do over time is to, is to bring some more people in we sort of felt like the three of us needed to get things rolling but we hope to be as inclusive as possible and one thing that's on the table is a different name um, but yeah, the goal was to have a scientific society dedicated to this area that could bring people together and, and sort of create a space where they didn't have to go to the diet literature or to the to these these other separate literatures where 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 this these issues are only sort of secondarily considered um, through things like you know the, the 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 conference that that Christoph hosts at the University of Kent through the talks that we've been sponsoring uh, this spring potentially in the future through a journal or other kinds of uh, uh, venues. So, if I could just sort of plug the talks, we've had absolutely we've, yeah. yeah we've got five amazing speakers. Um, uh, uh, this past January, Lucius Caviola gave a talk. Uh, he's done amazing work on speciesism. Uh, he's a currently at Harvard. Um, uh, he gave a talk about utilitarianism and whether people sort of have the same moral perspective uh, in relation to non-humans as they do to humans. And basically consistent with the ideas of speciesism, he found that people don't apply the same kind of moral code or principles of fairness to, to the welfare of animals as they do to humans. So, you know, is it okay to sacrifice a large group of people for the well-being of a single person? Uh, we're more likely to say yes if it's the human that we're saving, whereas humans, we sort of have less of an interest. It's a, so we're much more sort of uh, cut and dry when, it's, when it comes to humans. We're, we're sort of, we have few, fewer compunctions about like, oh, I don't want to be the person who pulls the trigger to kill this one person in order to save 10, whereas with animals, uh, it's sort of... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we see that we see that all the time in conservation. Utilitarianism is just predominant. The is predominant ethical framework that conservationists work in. They're right. very happy to kill animals for for whatever reason. Yeah. If it's good for the farms, or if it's good for the roads, yeah. or if it's yeah, right. 
Um, and that talk, yeah, seen... that talk is already up, and you can see it. I'll leave. I'll put a link to these talks yes, yeah. um, in the show notes. So if you're interested, I'd, I'd strongly encourage you to to check out these talks. They're, they'll be really they're fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Christoph ha Christoph Dunt at the University of Kent has a, has what they call the Shark Lab, which is a group of a network of researchers really devoted to this topic. And so he's sort of one of the people leading the charge in this area, and he's uh, graciously hosted. Um, the web space for this. And so, yeah, you can get uh, Lucius's talk um, there. Uh, Maddie Wilkes, uh, a postdoc at Yale, who's actually a native Australian, is going to be uh, speaking, uh, what are we on Tuesday here? Uh, uh, we'll be speaking on Thursday. So uh, actually she's in Australia right now. And so if your listeners are interested, uh, you could listen to her live. Um, it'll be February 25th this, at five. This this show will probably go up after this point. So you'll oh, be able that, to see her talk on, on, no, you're right. See her talk on the, on the, um, on the website again, but I will, I'll post, I'll post out the details through the Super. Oz, um, social media stuff. Super. Yeah. yeah. So she as a developmental sort of moral psychologist. And so she studies how kids develop ideas about morality and, and including ideas about treatment of animals. And so her talk is titled, how do children value animals? Um, and and uh, we're really excited and hopefully well, do, you, do you know what what age that sort of goes up to that the child sort of psychology stuff that she's working on because i suppose one thing that's question. sort of clear over the last decade is that um younger and younger like younger groups tend to have a much stronger motivation around animal ethics and environment than um older groups is that true is that is that Basically. I think some of her work would suggest that. I don't know what yeah. data she's going to be talking about in this particular talk, but one thing that my partner and I often talk about is that the, the easiest way, if you're watching a children's cartoon or a cartoon designed, marketed towards children, the easiest way to tell who the bad guy is, is that they are not nice to animals. It's like a, such a reliable effect. <laughs> Uh, in fact, we've even thought about studying this because it's so reliable that, you know, the sinister character yeah. is sort of cued, is foreshadowed by, you know, not being nice to their dog or whatever. Um, so I, it does seem like the innocence of youth comes with a sort of appreciation that we should be kind uh, to, to all species. And then that's sort of trained out of us uh, along the way somehow. Uh, but certainly Maddie could tell you more about that than I can. Mm, yeah. Um, our plan is to have uh, a talk every month leading up to the Animal Advocacy Conference, um, again, hosted by Jared University of Kent, uh, which will be the end of June, early July. Um, and so in March, we'll have Jawal Graca, who's at the University of Groningen. Um, he, uh, his background is in sustainability, communication, and behavior change. So he's, he approaches this from a kind of persuasion uh, environmental angle. Um, his talk is titled Chopsticks and Army Knives, Levering Psychology and Interdisciplinary Approaches to Enable Plant Forward Transition. So you know, how, how, how do you convince people um, uh, uh, to stop eating animals uh, for the sake of the environment? So that gets at some of your question earlier yeah. about, you know, uh, how, how well does that work? And, yeah. and you know, Dr. Graca certainly knows more about that than I do. Um, in April, Alina Salman, who's one of uh, the group, uh, a student in the group at Kent working with Christoph Don't, um, will be presenting. Uh, she studies intersectionality and gender identity. And so how, you know, one of the, one of the reasons that there's, that there's more women vegans uh, than male vegans presumably has something to do with masculinity and gender threat and that kind of thing. And so that's what she studies. And um, so she's going to talk in particular about how masculinity distorts perceptions of vegan men and meatless meats and is, is one's identity as a man a barrier to, uh, to, to going vegan or to trying plant-based food. And finally, uh, Catherine Forstell is a little bit more in my wheelhouse. She's an individual differences, personality, clinical psychologist. Uh, she's uh, working at William and Mary and she'll be a presenter in May. And uh, she's been doing some research on how personality traits relate to vegan and vegetarian diet. Uh, and she's gonna be actually be talking about uh, motivation. So how do omnivores desire to, and intentions to eat meat? How can one reduce those? So we're super excited about uh, these speakers. It's a really diverse, interesting group. And uh, a lot of them will probably also be involved with the animal advocacy conference uh, coming up this summer. And it's, it's a really great um, sort of, yeah, as you say, diverse group that shows 
all the different ways that people are approaching this topic and this idea and this this um, you know this moment. Uh, and that there are lots of really clever people putting in some hard work to try and figure out the um, how we make a better world for animals, I suppose. That's how I like to think about it. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. I mean, it's been such a joy for me because, you know, I have this sort of previous career. I only came into this work in the last five years or so. And so, you know, reading the sort of classics that, you know, uh, Gordon Hobson and Hal Herzog and, and mm. the Australian group, Steve Loft and Brock Bastian, um, you know, it's, it, this, this stuff has been in the literature for a long time because of people like that. But then, um, but seeing all the people who are just starting it as early career researchers, uh, uh, graduate students, uh, et cetera, postdocs. I mean, there's a really, really strong group of, of students. And so as I get sort of long in the tooth, I, I think my role is probably going to transition. I'm, I'm going to continue doing science, but I think I'm, I'm hoping that I can do something along with some of my more senior colleagues to create space for these people to have, to people to have opportunities to publish and work together, et cetera, because there's so much talent in this area and people are so passionate because it, it fuses their personal interests mm. with their scientific expertise in a way that I think other topics may, may not. And on, on that, on that sort of, um, you know, the classics and, uh, you know, a decade or more ago, I suppose there was, there's some like Hal Herzog's a really big name and same with Bastion. Um, sure. And you were talking earlier about it sort of being, it would have been harder if you started on this topic in your early career. Have, have you felt any sort of pushback between, about sort of trying to re research this topic or more particularly in terms of FAIR, trying to bring together advocacy, activism and science? Because in my, certainly in my um, area, I, 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 Call, I class myself as a you know a, a researcher and an activist, and I'm happy to do that. But I get a lot of pushback from other you know scientists in the conservation environmental sciences where they think that those things should be absolutely separate. They have this yeah. I, I, ideal understanding of science, which is not true that we're all unbiased, or that science is unbiased and is not clouded by these sorts of um, these sorts of ideas and things or that they don't have any bias within their research and I'm just wondering have do you get a sense of that or is psychology a little bit more open is it a bit more forward thinking in these sorts of things I think there are boundaries um, so I think intergroup relations researchers don't necessarily wouldn't necessarily think of this topic as part of of that area I think there's probably boundaries that can be broken down um, I don't see any inconsistency with being an advocate and a scientist at the same time. Uh, I'm, I would also describe myself that way. Um, I, you know, the, the great thing about science is that our interest as scientists is always in being wrong. So, so we sort of assume we sort of assume that we're probably wrong, and 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 it, and it lends itself to a kind of skepticism mm -hmm. and ideally objectivity. And if that doesn't work, then we have the sort of competition of ideas where. where we sort of get rewarded for proving that other people are wrong. So there's a lot of checks and balances, as you know, in science. Yep. Um, at the same time, I do think one has to be aware of the potential for their own biases to leak Absolutely. in. But as you, as you also pointed out, that's the case with, you know, it, it's All been science. the case in every other area that I've, that I've been involved with too. So I don't see how it's, it's really different in this one. That being said, I do think it's really critical for what we're doing right now to keep itself distinct from advocacy. Yep. We're, we're more than happy. And we have a number of members um, who are, at, who are involved in advocacy and who don't do science. And we're super excited to learn from them. And, and ideally we can do something that they can take into their work uh, that's meaningful. Uh, but, but I think, while our work is really inspired by moral concerns, um, it's critical that we're, we do, we're doing science to, to sort of yep. to ward off the criticism that you mentioned. So just as an example, one could imagine somebody, if, if we were to have a journal or at one of, at a conference, somebody presented work showing um, 
that it's not healthy to have to be vegan or something like that. Exactly. That would be yes. the kind of thing that we would be compelled to, you know, the, the data are what the data are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the different from an advocacy point of view, that would be the kind of thing that you want to minimize and not talk mm-hmm. about because it's not persuasive, mm-hmm. um, which is perfectly appropriate. It's, you know, whereas inside, so that to me is the key difference. I don't see within a person why a person, why a person couldn't do both. Yep. I also think the scientists have a lot to learn from advocates and the advocates potentially have a lot to learn from scientists. So um, we haven't experienced any pushback yet. We've been really pleased actually about the enthusiastic response. We've got more than 200 people who signed up and, you know, we've just sort of sent emails to people. So um, hopefully being involved in shows like this or other things will, will promote the fair society and get people involved. But I just think there's a lot of kind of a ground up grassroots spirit um, and, and, and we're just, we're just sort of getting here at the right time. Yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm, I think, or, or interest in these sorts of um, connections and collaborations between activism and research. And that's the next thing I wanted to ask: is how do you how do you see that actually? Because there's a there's a um, there's a small conference, a critical animal studies conference, which is um, more sociology bent. Um, that happens in Australia every couple, uh, every, most years, except for last year, that tries to do this activism and research, sort of bringing activists and research together. And it's great on the day when you're having the conference and things, but after that, sort of people go into, go go their own ways. And I'm not sure how much um, uh, collaboration there is, really. It's it, and, uh-huh. and maybe there's not, no, there's not the need for it, but what do you see as ha- how that might work? Or is it still... Are you still sort of figuring it out, still to be seen? Yeah, I have a lot to learn. I imagine that some of my colleagues who have been working in this area for longer have ideas about that. Um, you know, I think the fact that so many people involved in advocacy are interested in our group, even though we're pretty clear and explicit that like this is a non-advocacy scientific organization is encouraging. You know, I also have to give a shout out to advocacy organizations like Phonolytics or Animal mm-hmm. Charity Evaluators who are advocacy groups who fund research and then promote research. Animal Charity Evaluators funds research and, and Phonolytics, uh, you know, organizes, promotes research. And there's others as well that do that kind of thing. So I think there's a variety of creative ways in which we can work together. It's, it's kind of obvious to me that it's in our interest uh, to do so, I would imagine we could also learn something from the sociology group that you mentioned, and maybe, maybe, maybe we should contact them to see how they've been navigating that. But it sounds like your concern is that is that on the day of the conference, the advocates and the scientists kind of get together and talk, but then it ends there, and then everyone kind yeah. of goes 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 and yeah. does their separate thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, having a group in which we have both a scientific organization in which we have both people meeting and as some of the, you know, some of the advocacy organizations I mentioned just a moment ago, who are kind of bridging that gap. Hopefully the more we have, I do think it's important that you're clear about what you're doing, that you're either doing advocacy or you're doing science. And those two things really should not be blended, but that doesn't mean that any organization couldn't have arms that do both or, or there couldn't be intersections in creative ways. And I think um, I think I'm starting to see that more as well. Like um, there's a group over there in the UK called Animal Think Tank, and they're really yes. interested in 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 you know looking at the research, doing deep research, drawing upon Absolutely. the science um, to inform their advocacy. Uh, yeah, I, I see I see this as a really vital like this conference is really vital for feeding in and maybe building those connections. I I look forward to hopefully those connections do form and stay together I think um, but I, I suppose it's always all of these things community building is always a ongoing process it's not something that you do once and you stop um, absolutely so, yeah yeah creating the space for this to, to occur which is fantastic yeah that's really our idea and you know I think we all have our different strengths and and we should try to leverage those strengths in order to to make it happen um I don't pretend to know anything about advocacy. So I, I, you know, try to donate money and time and expertise when I can and try to do my part, but that's really not something I'm trained in and I don't have expertise, but I, I've learned through FAIR and through my experience in this, in this work, uh, I've met a lot of people who are really good at it and learned about places that are. And so I've learned a lot, um, from that exposure. And and our hope is that, is that that can be bi-directional and that advocacy can get something out of the scientific work that we're trying to to, uh, generate. Yeah, absolutely. We'll go to a quick break, a uh, quick song break, and then we'll come back and finish up just chatting about the conference that's going to happen um, in the middle of this year. And so the song, this song is A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam. Mm-hmm. 
Listening to Freedom of Species on 855 AM 3CR Community Radio, Radical Radio, and we're chatting with Professor Chris Hopwood from UC Davis, and we've been talking about FAIR, the the um, Society for Human Animal Intergroup Relations, which is um, a great name, and we've been talking about what they're trying to do with with that um, that society. They FAIR have organized or are organizing a conference for um for i've got the details here i believe yep for june the 30th and to the july the 2nd in 2021 um so a few months from now and it's a a conference that's going to bring together researchers and and activists to talk about sort of cycle psychology of of all of these sorts of things um chris do you want to tell us a little bit more about the We've got probably five minutes, a little bit more sure. about the conference, the intention and how people can find out more about it. And I'll leave noting that I'll leave a link in the um, in the descriptions. Absolutely. And I shouldn't take any credit for this. This is really Christoph Don't and his and his group at the University of Kent that are sponsoring this. And and the so I knew about this conference and a book that he published with Gordon Hobson uh, last year. Um, on this topic and I sort of contacted him asking him like what do how can we sort of push this along mm. and that's where we came up with the idea of the fair society which we're doing in collaboration with Jared Piazza um, so yeah that was scheduled for last summer it got cancelled yep. because of the pandemic and so uh, as you mentioned uh, late June uh, early July they're going to sponsor a virtual a series of talks that will include invited symposia so like any conference, people have submitted their their applications for proposals, and and um, this will be symposia on various topics. There will be poster presentations, and then there are uh, some keynote uh, speakers. Um, uh, Catherine Amiot, who's I think at McGill, uh, um, maybe University of Quebec actually in Montreal, um, who studies self and identity uh, uh, in relation to animals. Gordon Hodson, who I mentioned, uh, who had the book uh, with Christophe, um, which is called Why We Love and Exploit Animals, uh, sort of an academic book uh, from a social psychology perspective. Um, he, his background is in prejudice and discrimination, and, and, and he'll be giving a talk uh, about that. And Tobias Lehner, who is a Belgian advocate, uh, who probably yeah. people are familiar with his work and his book, How to Create a Vegan World, and mm -hmm. comes from a sort of utilitarian perspective. So there will be those keynotes, and we're hope I, I'm not sure exactly what Christoph has planned. You should have him on your show uh, to talk about this. Yeah, I'll um, definitely. Um, uh, he's great. Um, uh, but I'm hoping that there is some space for people to talk about like the future of the field moving forward for advocates and scientists to sort of get together to figure out the best ways to maintain the kind of contact that, that we worry about losing once we leave the conference and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, yeah, great for, for that information. I will. I'll reach out to Christoph and see if we can get an interview a bit closer to the conference to spruik it and um, get people's interest. So I suppose the, the great thing, I mean, it's not a lot of great things, but one of the great things that's happened this last year is that it's been easier to connect with people um, internationally. And we've seen these international conferences happen, which um, other, you, you'd have to spend thousands of dollars and fly all the way over to somewhere to be able to connect with colleagues and um people with similar interests. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely reach out to Christoph and see if they're interested. One last question um, before before we go, I wanted to ask um, what, I, what I think is good about FAIR and what you're doing and, and the, some of the research you're doing is, um, and what I'm trying to do in, in my sort of area of research as well is not just have things about animals in relation to humans, but also center animals as a um, as subjects of concern and and research. Um, how do do you see that possibility within psychology and with within human animal intergroup relations? So, l allowing animals to be part of that um, that research, not just it all being about humans. Do you see that happening or is it something that um, you're seeing people think about? Some of my favorite research uh, in this world comes from personality psychology and people assessing the personality traits in animals um, and doing things like figuring out how, how personality traits of animals and, and, and their, their companions sort of match up. And uh, some of my colleagues, Sam Gosling and Samin Vizier, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, did some work showing that the same models of personality that we use to classify humans seem to work pretty well for, for canines. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some recent work suggesting that pretty similar traits also work well to classify dolphins. So I think this is a really interesting finding. It's not surprising if you assume that individual differences in behavior in humans emerges yeah. via natural selection through the mechanisms that, that, that give rise to behavioral variation. You wouldn't be surprised to know that other animals sort of have the same kinds of neurological systems to give rise to variation. So exactly, for example, uh, some, some animals experience more negative emotions than others. It shouldn't be surprising that that works, whether you're human or not, or some, some animals care more about other members of their species and some less. And it shouldn't be surprising that the same kind of trait works, whether you're talking about dolphins or turtles or human beings or whatever. So I think that just because my background is in personality and individual yeah. differences, that's an example of the kind of work that I think is really interesting. And it's really telling because people don't assume that it's, it's weird because I think everyone knows that their dog has a personality if they, if they're a dog companion. And yet we sort of, forget that when we think about other animals as if all the pigs are exactly the same or whatever. But clearly if you hang out with a pig for a half or a group of pigs for a half an hour, you can see which one is dominant and which one is the sort of agreeable one, et cetera. And so I think that's a really nice way of breaking down some speciesist assumptions that we're all much more similar than we are different. Mm, yeah, thanks. That's a that's a great um, comment on that on, on that question. So thanks so much for joining us, Chris. I really appreciate it. That was a fantastic conversation and um check out check out fair's uh presentations by the the speakers that chris mentioned earlier i'll put a link in the show notes um and also look into the conference uh it, I, I imagine it's it's available for anyone to attend so you might be able to attend um probably not present i think the um the things closed on the 28th of february um but yeah check it out and we'll leave We'll leave notes in the, or we'll leave links in the show notes. Um, and if you've got any feedback for Freedom of Species, get in touch at info at freedomofspecies.org or via Facebook or Twitter at FOS Radio, FOS Radio. Um, catch us next week, every week uh, from one till two, every Sunday. Uh, tune in via 855am in Melbourne, or you can stream us via the website or get us on your favourite podcast. Um, Stay tuned for In Psychedelia, everything to do with uh, drugs and drug policy and all that sort of good stuff. So check it out. Just a quick note, folks. Next week, Foz will be taking a break to give space for the binary busting broadcast, special broadcast being run all next Sunday, the 21st. Make sure you listen in and we'll catch you back on the 28th.
3CR's Binary Boston broadcast is airing seven hours of trans and gender diverse radio in the lead up to 2021 Trans Day of Visibility and as part of Bi Health Awareness Month. Bringing the noise to the Western gender binary. Tune in on Sunday, 21st of March, between 12 noon and 7 pm, to hear trans and gender diverse voices busting binaries, including in areas of art, culture, politics, well-being and resilience. Towards the Transgender Day of Audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash binary busting. The 3CR Binary Busting Broadcast Project is financially supported by a Pride Events grant from the Victorian Government. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.